Our scripture for today is John 6, 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It, uh, it really is a joy and a privilege to, um, to be here with you this morning. Uh, this church does have a, um, a special place in my heart, and, um, and, and Tim does too. Tim is, is one of my all-time favorite people. So, uh, so it's really exciting to me to get to come and open God's Word and, um, and just continue on in this study that you guys have been doing in, uh, in John. So let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll look into the Word and see what He has for us. So Father, we're, we're grateful for Your written Word. Lord, it really is a lamp to our feet. Lord, a light to our path. I pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear today. Um, as we look at these passages in the book of John, help us, Lord, not just to be hearers, but help us to be doers of the word as well, Lord. Father, we pray that in your love that you would change us, that you would help us to fall in love with you more, help us to be more like Jesus. It's in his name that we ask this. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be continuing on um, in this study in John. We're going to look specifically at that passage that we just read together in John chapter 6. And we're going to look at this passage from three different vantage points. And the three vantage points are from the vantage point of knowledge, from the vantage point of understanding, and from the vantage point of wisdom. So knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. These three words are often found um, in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you count it up, they actually appear about 1,500 times. And so it's something that God has a lot to say about. And, um, and so even though these words appear often in Scripture, and they even appear often together in Scripture, they're not the same. They don't mean the same thing. And so what we need to do this morning to start off is look at, at uh, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom and ask how are they similar and, um, and how are they different. So th the way that, um, that I'd like to do this is the, a knowledge, when we say knowledge, what we're really talking about is the facts. Okay, what are the facts of a matter? That just, just that's it. What are the facts that are involved here? And, and um, knowledge answers the question, what? So, what happened? That's knowledge. Understanding, on the other hand, asks, what do these facts mean? See, what, what are the implications of these facts? And if, if knowledge asks the question, what? Then understanding asks the question, so what? See, so what? What does this mean? And then wisdom looks at how the understanding and the knowledge kind of come together and synthesize together to speak to our own hearts. Now let's look at these three in a, in a story from 1 Kings and, um, and see how they work. 
So 1 Kings chapter 3 tells a story of two women who came before King Solomon. Now, both of these women had been prostitutes. The first woman came to the king and said, um, this woman and I live together. Uh, I gave birth to a baby. And then three days later, this woman gave birth to a baby. But in the night, this woman rolled over on her baby and the baby died. And what she did while we were asleep is she got my baby away from me and, and exchanged babies. So when I woke up in the morning to nurse my baby, I found that the baby was dead. But then when I looked closer at the baby, I said, this baby isn't mine. That baby's mine. But the other woman, the second woman said, no, 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 this baby's mine. The dead baby is yours. And, um, and so the, the, um, the king looks at, the, at these two women and says, okay, let me get this straight. You both are saying that this baby is yours. And they said, that's right. And so the king said, okay, uh, bring me a sword. And we're going to cut the baby in two, and we're going to give half to you and half to you. Now, the woman who really was the mother said, no, stop, don't do that. Give her the baby. But the other woman said, this is a good idea. Cut the baby in half. That way, neither of us will have the baby. So the king looked at the first woman and said, she's the mother, give the baby to her. Okay. Now, um, verse 28 of 1 Kings 3 says this, And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Okay. So the facts of this story is that we're talking about five people here. We have... Uh, two adult females, we have two infants, one deceased, we have one adult male who is in a position of some authority. These two women have engaged in prostitution, they have both given birth to children, and now they're in a dispute over the, the child who is not deceased. They're asking this person in authority to render a judgment about um, whose child this is. Now, those are the facts. Facts are important because if we don't have the facts, if we don't have knowledge, we have no idea what's going on in the story. But facts alone aren't that helpful. In fact, the, the scripture says that knowledge can puff us up. Knowledge alone can make us arrogant. So, I have a sidekick who has far more knowledge than I will ever have lives here in my pocket. My iPhone has more techn technological knowledge than we used in 1969 when we put a man on the moon. So this is a bigger computer than NASA was using when we put a man on the moon. See, it can access terabytes of knowledge, but it has no understanding and it has no wisdom. So knowledge alone is not that helpful. Um, the facts um, in this story, uh, well, we, we went through those facts, that's that knowledge, but the king, even after having these facts, still did not understand who the mother was. See, he, he, he understood that, um, that he was not just dealing 
with women, he was also dealing with mothers. So this moves it from knowledge into understanding. So, so the king understood that it was not just women he was dealing with, it wasn't just prostitutes he was dealing with, they were mothers. And both of these mothers, one had lost a child and the other was in real danger of losing her child. And so even though the king understood all those things, um, you know, DNA testing wasn't going to be available for another 3,000 years. And so the king still didn't know who um, the baby belonged to. He, he had knowledge, he had understanding, but he still didn't know. But when God's wisdom came on the scene and the king called for the sword, all of a sudden this unsolvable dilemma was easily resolved. See, once wisdom comes on the scene, then, um, then it's easy to resolve that situation. So knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, all three are necessary, all three are critical for us to live out our life in the Lord. So let's look at these, at these verses from John chapter 6 from the perspective first of knowledge, then of understanding, and then of wisdom. So first, knowledge. What are the facts of this story? Well, we know from verses uh, 16 and 17 that the time of day was evening and that it was dark. Uh, we know that Jesus had not returned from somewhere. It doesn't really say where, but he had not returned from somewhere. So the disciples begin to row uh, across the lake and that their, their destination was Capernaum. So, uh, do we have, yeah, there's our map. This is actually a Google Earth image of the Sea of Galilee. So this was, was taken within the last year. And you can see Capernaum um, up on the northwest shore, or up on the, the left-hand side there. That's the, the city of Capernaum. Now, I really like maps because what maps do is they help me to remember that when I read the Bible, I'm reading about real people at a real place and a real time. See, the Sea of Galilee was real. The boat that they were in was real. The storm that they were in was real. And Jesus was really, really there with them. So the destination was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. Um, John says about three or four miles away. So this map shows us the white line would be a three-mile row across from the other side, and the yellow line would be a four-mile uh, trip across the Sea of Galilee. So if we, if we extrapolate that way, we can kind of tell roughly where they started. So that was, you know, somewhere in that area over on the, the east or the right side of this map is where the disciples started when they, uh, they started rowing across. Now, um, we know from verse 18 that the sea was rough because a strong wind was blowing. That's what it tells us. And verse 19 tells us that they saw Jesus walking on the water, which totally freaked them out. Uh, they were really, really frightened. Um, in verse 20, we learn that Jesus spoke to them. When he got close, their fears were calmed, and then they took him into the boat and immediately landed. So these are the facts. These are the knowledge in this story. The facts answer the question, what happened? Well, now let's look for understanding in this story. So understanding, um, again, we ask, what do these facts mean with understanding? Uh, what are the implications of these facts? 
Well, one tool to help us to gain understanding is to put the facts in their proper context. So what happened right before these verses that we're reading and what happens right after these verses that we're reading? Well, if we go back to the story uh, earlier in this chapter, which is what you studied last week, we find Jesus um, feeding a crowd that was probably about 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. Big miracle. Uh, the crowd's response to this miracle was a move to make him king by force. So they were going to force him to become their king. Um, it says that uh, John says that Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself, which um, if we can bring that other map back up here. Yeah, that you see there's an X over here on the kind of the far right side. That's the closest mountain to where the disciples probably sailed from. So that's probably the mountain that Jesus was on when he went up to the mountain. Uh, this also explains why the disciples were alone on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, apparently waiting for him. Um, if we read the verses right after this story, which is what you'll be getting next week, uh, we find out that when um, the next day, when people couldn't figure out where Jesus was, this giant crowd, uh, they got in boats and they went all over the Sea of Galilee looking for Jesus and they found him at Capernaum. And when he began to talk to them, he said some really hard things to them. Um, he said things that were so offensive to them that it says that some of his disciples were no longer following him because of the things that he said. They were so difficult. Um, so that's one way that we can gain understanding. Put the thing in context. What happened before, what happened right after. Another way is, is what we can call the whole counsel of God. Um, the whole counsel of God is a term that comes from something that the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20 when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders. And what he said was, I have not shrunk back from giving you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I've told you everything there is that you need to know to follow Jesus. So he had given them the whole counsel of God. Well, let me give you an example of how the whole counsel of God works. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it, and it will be yours. Now, is it just me, or does that sound like a blank check? <laughs> See, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it, it will be yours. Um, taken alone, this verse makes God sound like a genie in a lamp. You know, I rub the lamp, I say the magic words, in Jesus' name, and he does whatever I ask him, okay? Uh, as a young believer, that was, this verse was really frustrating to me because um, I asked God for things, and I, I honestly believed he was going to do it, and then sometimes I wouldn't see it happen. So we might ask the question, does God have anything else to say about asking and receiving that might help us here? Well, First um, John chapter 3 he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Oh, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. See, those conditions change. Whatever you want, ask for it, believe it, it's yours. Oh, if we keep his commandments and do what pleases him, then we receive what we ask from him. 
Um, how about James chapter 4, verse 3? You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to, split, to spend it on your passions. So James also helps us to see that we might ask and not receive something um, because sometimes we, act, we ask selfishly. Uh, that's how this whole counsel of God thing works. We search the scriptures for everything that God has to say about a certain topic rather than just pull our favorite verse out and then build a whole doctrine around that verse. So let's apply this principle of the whole counsel of God um, to our verses in John chapter 6. Does God have anything else to say um, about what happened that night? Glad you asked. He actually, in his desire for us to have more knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, gave us two more gospel accounts of that same night. So let's look at them. If we go to um, uh, Matthew's account, Matthew 14, beginning in verse 20, is the tail end of the feeding of the multitude. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, do not be afraid, it is I. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, began to, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. Wow, there is a lot more um, to see about this story in Matthew's account. Um, for those of you that are fans of The Chosen, this is Matthew. He tells us all the details, okay? And, and Matthew gives us a ton of details here. First, we learn from Matthew that Jesus had been praying up on the mountain. John didn't tell us that. He just told us that Jesus went up on the mountain. Um, we learn that the disciples were having a bad time of it on the water, because the wind was against them. So the wind was actually coming out of the west. They were rowing east. It was coming out of, or it was coming out of the east. They were rowing west. Um, John told us that the sea was rough. That's all he told us because of a strong wind. Wind could have been coming from any direction in John's account. We also find out from Matthew that it was the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came walking on the water which is a Roman term from somewhere between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. So these guys had been rowing all night against a headwind and didn't make very much progress. Now also by reading this account, we find out that the disciples' response to seeing Jesus on the water was not simply terror. Matthew tells us that number one, they didn't recognize him. Uh, they didn't know who it was. And number two, they thought that it was a ghost. Um, this account also reports that when Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat, the storm ceased like that. So that was the end of the, of the storm. Again, we didn't hear that from John. The disciples then worshiped Jesus 
and said that he truly was the Son of God. And then to top it all off, Matthew records that though John said their original destination had been Capernaum, they actually landed a few miles south of Capernaum at Gennesaret. So you can see Gennesaret is, is a little bit further down from Capernaum. So they, uh, what that might say is that there was actually a west-northwest wind blowing on them. So it, as they were rowing, it was blowing them off course, and they wound up a few miles south of their destination. And we know the next day that Jesus went up to Capernaum. So that was where he was headed anyway. Um, so if we turn now to Mark chapter 6, we find the same story again with a little more detail. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd. And after, having, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. <laughs> okay. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, so in John and Matthew's account, we simply heard that the disciples got into a boat and started across the sea. But Mark lets us know that this was not the disciples' idea or them being impatient with Jesus spending too much time up on the mountain. Mark lets us know that Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go before him. Verse 48 gives us that other tidbit, Jesus meant to pass them by. What on earth is that about? I mean, is this just Jesus out for a four-mile walk on high seas and, uh, you know, and he just, you know, intended to go by him? And, oh, guys, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, maybe something else going on there that we, we're going to need to figure out. But here's the thing. Jesus knew beforehand how his boys were going to respond to seeing him walking on the stormy sea. They had just seen him multiply five barley loaves and two fish to feed 20,000 people with 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And yet, when he got into the boat and the wind stopped, Mark records that they were utterly astounded. Why should they be utterly astounded? See, hadn't they just seen him do a, a huge miracle to feed this, this gigantic crowd? But then Mark tells us why they were astounded, for they did not understand about the lows, but their hearts were hardened. Now watch, because we're going to move from the facts, the knowledge about this story, to the understanding of it. Remember, knowledge is what, and understanding asks, so what? What do these facts mean? Jesus had performed an amazing miracle of provision by feeding all those people. And their response had been to try to make him king. Now, some people in that multitude saw him as the Messiah and worshiped him. But many just saw him as Jesus, the meal ticket. Okay? Even the disciples, because of the hardness of their hearts, had not understood the message as he fed everyone. And Jesus had to force them to get in the boat 
and get out of a situation that was quickly getting out of hand. So later that night, Jesus performs another miracle. Only this time, he temporarily sets aside the laws of nature and makes the wind and the sea obey him in a way that blew the disciples away. It wasn't just the wind that was blowing. Now, it's one thing to quietly watch as fish and bread just keep on coming. Um, Tim talked about the, the Jesus movement in the early 1970s. I actually saw a very small version of, of that miracle happen. I'd been invited along with uh, 12 other people to dinner at this girl's house. We got there, and to our dismay, she came out with one small roasted chicken <laughs> and put it on the table. And we had 13 people who were just barely out of their teens and were really hungry. And so, so we gingerly began to pick at this chicken because we wanted to be sure that everybody at least got a taste of it. But after a while, we noticed that the chicken wasn't getting any smaller. I mean, it wasn't like that we saw an extra drumstick pop out or an extra thigh suddenly appear. It's just that no matter how much chicken we ate, there was still more chicken there. So we really went after it. And all 13 of us that were there got full, pushed back from that table and looked at that platter. And there was still at least a chicken's worth of platter or a platter's worth, of, or one chicken still there on the platter, okay? <laughs> um, it, it hadn't diminished, you know? Now, none of us, I mean, it wasn't, there was no angelic voices, there were no kettle drums rolling or anything. It just, the food just kept on coming. And so I think that's what happened there with that miracle with the, when he fed the multitude, is the food just kept on coming. And, um, you know, it wasn't a flashy miracle, but it was a miracle. Um, if you hadn't been paying attention, you might not have even noticed that a miracle was happening. Well, it's quite another thing to walk out into gale force winds on a high sea, climb into the boat, and then with a word, make the whole thing stop. See, um, it was their wake-up call. It was a wake-up call for the disciples. This was not about a steady supply of food. They were in the presence of him who commands the winds and the waves. See, Mark says that their, uh, their response was to be utterly astounded. Matthew says they worshiped him. So these things are the understanding, the why and the so what of this story. The disciples had seen a miracle of provision in the feeding of that multitude, but it took an encounter with Jesus as he flexed on nature to get through to their hard hearts. Okay, so that leaves us with wisdom. What's the wisdom in all this as we ask the question, what then? Well, godly wisdom always brings it home from, from wherever the story starts, which in our case is on the, the Sea of Galilee. It brings it home from there to our house, to our hearts. See, um, understanding is really good. And we can watch knowingly as Jesus changes the disciples' hearts. Wisdom changes our hearts, okay? Wisdom is the end game for knowledge and understanding. The book of Proverbs spends entire chapters talking about the surpassing worth of obtaining wisdom. It says that wisdom is more valuable than silver and gold. So where is the wisdom for us in these verses? How does our Father want to change our hearts by reading John chapter 6? You know, I think there's a tendency for us to look at the disciples out there in that boat 
and say, silly Israelites, why didn't you guys catch on sooner? As if, you know, if we had been there, we would have caught on sooner. Um, I think actually we're just exactly like them, you know. Um, we see natural miracles, God flexing on nature all the time, and, and our hardened hearts aren't amazed by that. No? Haven't seen God demonstrate miraculous things lately? Well, that's not what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God constantly reveals himself to us in the miracles of nature. Now, atoms are the building blocks of all matter. They're made up of protons, they've got neutrons, they've got electrons, and a bunch of other things like quarks and, and gluons. And so this is, a, this is an artist's conception of a boron atom, okay? Uh, these little particles making up each atom are, are mysterious, and they're, they're traveling around at light speed. Uh, but here's the kicker. There's no good reason for those protons and those neutrons in the nucleus of an atom to hang together. There's no reason for them to do that. Um, there's some mysterious force that's causing them to clump together. And since science can't bring itself to say uh, something unknown is holding them together, uh, we, made up, we made up a term for it, and we call it the nuclear binding force, okay? It's the nuclear binding force. Science doesn't understand why it's there, doesn't even know what it is, uh, only that it exists and it holds the nucleus of every atom in the universe together. The first direct evidence that we had that atoms even existed didn't appear until 1827. But 1800 years before that, the Apostle Paul, writing about Jesus, said this, He is the invisible, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and listen to this, in him all things hold together. Okay? Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, though I don't think it's much of a limb, to say that the only reason that any of us are holding together today or that anything else in the universe is actually not just drifting apart is because Jesus is holding it all together. See, he is the nuclear binding force. And that's only one of the miracles of nature that Paul was talking about in Romans long before mankind knew that atoms even existed or that science had a clue. Those of you who know me know that I am an astronomy geek. Um, I became fascinated with the night sky while I was in junior high school, um, long before the Lord apprehended me. Um, after he got a hold of me, my interest in creation just went into high gear. King David was also captivated by the nighttime sky. Listen to him in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
So David's questions were, number one, who am I that you care about me? And two, who is this God who would condescend to love you and me? Now, as a shepherd, David had access to far darker skies than you or I have ever seen. There was, there was no artificial light. It was dark where David was. And if David had pretty good eyesight, on a, on a night, a dark night, he could see about 5,600 stars, okay? Today, every time we build a bigger telescope, we see more and more stars. So the present count stands at about 7 times 10 to the 64th power, which looks like this, <laughs> okay? Um, that's a greater number of stars than all the grains of sand on all the beaches and deserts of Earth. See, it's a lot of stars. But he didn't just make all those stars. Listen to Isaiah. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. So first he creates them. Then he names each and every one of that 7 times 10 to the 64th power number of them. And then, because he is strong in power, he guides each star in its path through the heavens. None is ever out of place. So yeah, all of us have seen our share of natural miracles. This same Jesus who came walking on the water, on the sea, to his boys to show his, his authority over nature is the same one who created the stars, named each one of them, holds them in place as they do their part in the great dance, and he's the same Jesus who holds all the atoms together everywhere, and he's the one who loves us and who wants deeper and deeper relationship with each one of us. Now that, friends, is some of the wisdom that you can see in John chapter 6, okay? Um, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you need to know that you don't have to be a super Christian to do this little exercise that we just did, looking for knowledge, for understanding, and for wisdom. So you don't have to have a PhD in theology or pastor a church. What you will need is a Bible, a pen, and some paper, <laughs> okay? It, it is, pastor Matt Chandler is fond of saying this, God put the cookies on the bottom shelf. <laughs> he, you know, he didn't make this difficult for us. <laughs> if you can read, you can read your Bible and you can search for knowledge, understanding, and wisdom there. But it will take time to do what Luke called searching the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. And that's the rub for most of us. We're Americans. We wear our busyness like a merit badge, okay? Building a relationship with God is a lot like building a relationship with anybody else. It takes time to build relationships. And it just won't work to say to God, you know, I really love you, um, but I, I, I don't have any time to read my Bible or pray. Um, how about I just toss an extra 20 bucks in the offering? I mean, after all, time is money. You know, um, that won't work. Uh, that would be a lot like uh, saying to your wife or if you're um, a woman saying to your husband, um, I really care about you, 
but um, I'm just too busy to actually spend any time with you. Um, how about I give you 20 bucks? Love you. <laughs> you know, uh, that's not going to fly with a husband or a wife. It's not going to fly with God either. See, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, when we hear that verse, almost all of us think about our money. But that's, our time is every bit as much a part of our treasure as our money is, okay? We need to stop getting rolled by the enemy. If your life is too busy, then it's time to reprioritize. Jesus comes first. Family, both natural and spiritual, come next. And then everything else comes under that somewhere. Careers, houses, lands, hobbies, businesses, all need to be adjusted uh, to their proper significance. So it might mean changing jobs, really might. Might mean scaling down into a house that you can afford without working 70 hours a week. See, look around this room, just, just look around. Now think about what's gonna be left here in 10,000 years. See? This building won't be. The only thing that's gonna be left here is the eternal God who is with us in this room right now and each of us who are eternal beings. That's going to be it. And that's where our treasure needs to be invested in those eternal things, okay? Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, we're so honored that you would come and spend your Sunday morning with us. Um, there's two popular images of Jesus today. One is chubby baby Jesus in the manger, and the other is adult Jesus, um, meek and mild, floating through the Judean countryside, holding a sheep on one arm and patting children on the head with the other hand. See, both of those are caricatures of the truth. D-Day the Allied invasion of Europe, which began in June of 1944, is a faint shadow of the invasion of Earth that was initiated when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. See, God had declared war on sin and death. The God-man had come to Earth to live the life that we were supposed to live but never did, and then to die a death on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin. The nails did not hold Jesus to the cross. Love for us did. See, that was what held him there. He could have gotten down from there anytime he wanted to. It was love for us that held him there. Okay. But it didn't end with his sacrifice. After three days, he came out of the grave victorious because death didn't have the strength to hold him. He spent the next few weeks after his resurrection, comforting and encouraging his disciples, appearing to over 500 people before he went back to his, and amazingly enough, our Father. See, that is, that is so cool. You know what Jesus is doing now? He's doing the same stuff that he was doing when he was walking around on the earth. He's ministering life to people. He's drawing people out of death into life. He's bringing people into his family. Um, he's wrecking Satan's plans. Only now, he's using a bunch of broken, weak, but forgiven people. 
That's us, by the way. <laughs> okay? <laughs> his offer to you, if you don't know him today, is the same as his offer was to James and John, the same as it was to Peter and Andrew, the same that it was to Tim and Christy and to me and to everybody else who has received him. Same offer. Come, follow me. See, that's, that's been his offer all along. Um, I'm going to get quiet um, inside for a moment for each of us. So, um, and, and just kind of respond to the Lord. So let's close our eyes and just bow our heads and, um, you know, and, and, let's, um, and let's get quiet before the Lord. Um, if, um, you know, God's not looking for flowery prayer. Um, you don't have to pray in these and thous um, unless you want to. Uh, a really good heart cry might be the same one that Jesus, that Peter had when he cried out and reached up his hand to Jesus and he said, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. That's, that's a good heart cry. So let each one of us turn our hearts to him now and let's just spend a couple minutes in prayer. Father, I ask for my friends here today that you'll hear our words and Lord, even more than our words, that you'll hear our hearts. Lord, do your, do your work in us, I pray. It was for your pleasure, Lord, that we were created. Lord, help us to delight in your love and be all that you had in your mind for us when you created us, Lord. Father, we can hardly believe that you would want people like us at your table, but we're so grateful that you do. Lord, we commit ourselves to you now. We ask your blessing on each of us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.